anxiety, I think, is often the telltale sign, not that something's going wrong, but often that one is coming into contact with these kinds of incongruent parts of the personality. And rather than jumping to a group psychology to make that go away, there's a kind of deep dive into one's own idiosyncratic, specific, and and subjective nature. And my thought on that is that as the individual is, is perhaps jumping in that rabbit hole, especially if there were significant failures in attachment, the physiological experience of doing that has to be addressed. If somebody feels a paralyzing anxiety as they open up emotionally, if one loses their sense of themselves, if, if it's impossible to find language. I think that it's important not to sort of just mystify that experience and chalk it up to one's lot in life. And this is, you know, you have to go through this to get to the next step. That may be true, but I think it doesn't address what we now understand to be very reasonable and important insights into what it takes for the higher order mammal, the human being, to function in a, a good enough way with their feet on the ground a good part of the time. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges. Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 23. I just came back from quite a long uh, adventure, crisscrossing Ontario, Canada, visiting family and friends, singing. I'm also a professional singer. I had a bunch of engagements in Canada and also working with a lot of my clients that I still see virtually overseas. And I'm back here in uh, Stockholm, landing, getting my bearings again, and here with you. And I was re reflecting on what uh, I wanted to talk about today. I think it's time to do a solo podcast and reconnect. And what's on my mind is a kind of moment that I went through during my master's degree in psychology, which was a moment that I think a lot of people go through when they study uh, a subject with a certain intensity. And it had to do with feeling kind of unmoored from some of my earlier assumptions when it came to theories of the mind, of life. And for practical reasons, what I would like to delve into today is this tension between an area of psychology that tends to focus on self-help, solutions, looking at human beings, 
on a particular spectrum in terms of functionality. This ties in with the last podcast of me talking to Joe and us delving into contemporary thinking on neurodiversity and sort of the foundation of what had brought me into the field of psychology, which was much more attuned with a kind of mystification of human life. Uh, so to put that maybe in, in just more in clearer terms, looking at life experience as kind of divined in a way, you know, in the way that we might say, well, that didn't go so well, but I learned from it and it was meant to be. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't get a job, for instance, or or a relationship ends and you can sort of very casually say, oh, that that it was meant to be. And, you know, there's real question of whether that's just us rationalizing something away or saying that to comfort ourselves or whether that is really true. You know, what does that mean if someone says that was meant to be? Well, that betrays, you know, that we don't really think we we had much choice in the matter, <laughs> you know, and I don't know if we always scrutinize these casual assumptions in that way. But personally, my first introduction in any profound way to psychology was to the work of Carl Jung and dreams and looking at the ways that the images and events that we dream of at night act as a kind of uh, unconscious counterpoint to our waking life. And this idea that there's a kind of wisdom and logic that is always present and guiding us. And, and there are ways that these ideas have, have evolved in a much more contemporary way. And maybe today we'll, we'll delve into that. But to an extent, this kind of literary understanding of our lives, you know, seeing a kind of narrative in our life, it stands in contrast with perhaps we might say a more reductive way of looking at the human body and our behavior from the sort of somatic and physiological standpoint, which is, oh, you know, somebody makes a decision not, not because it was divined or meant to be, but out of a more reductive way of saying, well, there's a craving there. I mean, obviously this echoes... Uh, Freud and and looking at drives and looking at what drives us emotionally in our lives and scrutinizing that. And in a very practical way, I think this is something that confronts me every day in, in my practice. People coming to therapy, you know, driven by an unsettled feeling that something isn't right. And recently, I've been talking with a lot of people about the ways that this has changed in terms of what we demand of ourselves. And what I mean by that is that historically, when people came to therapy earlier in the 20th century, often it was because there was a a sense of guilt of not doing enough for others. You know, you can think about the kind of 
anachronistic, you know, worker who, you know, spending 30, 40 years in the same career. I know it's a bit of a cliche to reference this, this kind of model of, of work, you know, getting the, the gold watch and what I've kind of gleaned from the literature and those that would work with people in that environment was there was often a sense of guilt. You might even say kind of religious guilt. You know, you can think of a of a society that was governed in some ways more by religion. Of course, there are still many, many places in the world and in Western society that still are governed by a kind of moral, ethical code often through religion. And so there'd be a sense of like, I'm not doing enough. And in many ways, the pendulum has swung. And instead of that kind of what we might call superego coming down on people and trying to live up to it, that has changed to a, a sense that we, you know, thou must be fulfilled. <laughs> you know, there's a tremendous amount of literature and on social media there's a lot being communicated around you know setting boundaries making sure that that you're paying attention to yourself you know making sure you're not fulfilling others uh, desires at the expense of your own and this is i think in many ways a very western individualistic idea but one that i think is very pervasive and important. And, and then that leads to what I was describing earlier, which is then, you know, one might go see a therapist or, or reach out for other means because one doesn't feel like one is fulfilled in their life. One is not living up to a kind of intrinsic sense of what one would determine to be a, a meaningful life. And I might, in today's podcast, stick a little bit with the foundations of my own thinking, which I come back to often, which have to do with with a basic idea that Carl Jung had as a kind of matrix, if you will, for psychological health, which was this basic notion that connected the ego, so our conscious experience of ourselves, uh, what we know with what he called a kind of capital S self, you know, this kind of broad, all-containing, often unconscious breeding ground for our creativity and in some sense, germanely who we are. And, and dreams in many ways and symbols from dreams would, would emerge from or represent these core foundational notions that we're trying to connect with and and touch. And the idea was that, or is that, you know, we get glimpses of this. We get glimpses of the capital S self in, in moments in our life, in connection with others, in, you know, spurts of creativity, in dreams, that, that there's never this, this perpetual connection to the self so much as you know, an increasing awareness of what it means to become who we are, which of course ties in with with his other basic idea of individuation. You know, to to separate from the collective, to work hard to have discrimination around our decisions, and to go beyond our family, even our friends, even our partners, and really invest in our own 
idiosyncratic experience in the world. And another idea that I wanted to have in the back of our minds today is this notion of teleology, which is that we're driving towards something. Whereas in some sense, when we talk about having a crisis or something being wrong, there's one end of the psychological spectrum which you know, looks at that really as, as something is wrong. You know, why did you get into that car accident? Or, or what was wrong with you that you weren't, you know, paying attention at work and you made this mistake or you missed your flight? And, you know, these are very kind of pedestrian mistakes that could have been avoided. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, these are more related to, you know, Freud's kind of slips of the tongue, parapraxis, you know, the, the Freudian slip. The time we, you know, say something that we didn't mean or we do something we didn't intend to do. And so there really is a kind of tension of, you know, when and how do we treat something as just some error? And when, when do we think about events in our life that don't go our way as a kind of other logic that is unfolding? I don't find it easy to hold that tension. Uh, and even as a therapist, you know, to know what in the moment is is not most helpful, but is maybe most true, or because I think that one of the one of the dangers, especially when it comes to issues of mental health, and again, I think this relates to the last podcast, is that because there is such a desire to create for ourselves and move towards a kind of existence that feels satisfactory, that contains a degree of meaning, that has a degree of fulfillment. So much of what comes to us, I would say, from more standardized psychiatry, such as the diagnostic manual, the, the DSM, are categories of pathology, you know, that someone is behaving in a way that is abnormal and uh, causing them trouble and causing society trouble. And so then what filters down from that are all kinds of uh, chatter and noise in society about what it means to be a kind of adapted, civilized, quote-unquote, normal human being. And so a lot of us arrive at junctures in our life and really question, am I normal? Am I, did I make the right decisions? Did I make a mistake? Am I doomed because of certain events in my past or my family environment? And I think these are very heavy questions that are not easy to work through and scrutinize. And in certain cultures, very aggressive to the individual. You know, if you listen to my last podcast, in some ways, Joe was making the point that people who have a different way that they perceive the world, it can be hyper-intellectual. You may not sort of feel things on a visceral level, but rather think them. I had a colleague once, a psychiatrist, who would often say that he, you know, he thinks his feelings. And you have others, you know, who really feel things and, you know, may have a, a harder time thinking. 
And Joe's point was that there can be a huge range of how people approach a relationship and themselves that is important to scrutinize and be open to. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, that often our inability to accept somebody else comes from the anxiety that it causes us. I heard this wonderful lecture recently of these two American professors who had written a book on ambivalence and in their book looked at zombies and the fascination with zombies in in our culture. And they didn't set out to look at that, but it caught their attention actually because one of their children responded that they thought you know, zombies represent an ambivalence and they didn't really know what the child meant. And so they started watching these films and they realized that in many ways, when we don't understand something or we see our neighbor or someone else behaving in a very different way that we would, that there can be a tendency to zombify them, to basically treat them like they're the walking dead right? That we all make very casual comments about even people that we love. You know, how could they act like that, right? Or or can you believe they said that? <laughs> These kind of absolute statements as in the, the behavior of the other is is inhuman. They're like a zombie. And rightfully so, they pointed out a real danger in that. The kind of evacuation of our own fear of being abnormal onto the other. And of course, they went on to analyze some contemporary uh, events, including the storming of the Capitol in the US and the ways that society split and other people become zombies in our mind. You are not human. And this, this I think, in some ways, is perhaps an outgrowth of a very narrow definition in psychology of what it means to function in a normal way. Never mind what happens when cultures become more pluralistic, multi-ethnic, and it becomes more difficult to sustain and hold the other and the tension of otherness uh, when it comes to everything from food to clothing to how one speaks to religious affiliations. And I don't have to say much more about how difficult and fragile that can be. And human beings have had many successes in that regard, but also incredible failures at trying to, to contain the other. And I think this relates to the crisis that I actually went through when I was studying because the early work that I was exposed to really had to do with this very personal, subjective, idiosyncratic way that the human being evolves. And and beyond that, this idea that the obstacles that we often encounter in our life have a purpose. That's in some ways what kind of teleology means, which is that you're you're driving towards something. And I found it difficult. And I sometimes uh, still do find it difficult to kind of hang on to that idea, especially in the face of the fact that so much good has come out of 
for instance, uh, understanding developmental trauma, uh, appreciating what it means when there isn't a kind of good enough attachment environment growing up and how that can specifically impair us to have a good enough way that we can, you know, feel our emotions, express them in language and have relationships. And so to be honest with you, even though these parts of me have have come together in much more synchronized ways over the years, I still think that there is a tension there and and I might attempt today to talk about this in a way that that has come to make sense in in my own mind. So specifically, like how do we reconcile the fact that on the one hand, you know, there is a clear understanding of the need for safety and for love for a human being to develop and have a kind of good enough way of relating to themselves so they can relate to others and not be overwhelmed by extreme bouts of panic and anxiety and existential dread. On the other hand, the idea of going through these crucibles of loss of meaning, loss of relationship, of loss of connection to oneself, that this also occupies the realm of the archetypal in the sense that a drama, you think about all kinds of rites of passage, for instance, rites of passage into adulthood, rites of passage of getting married, rites of passage of retiring, rites of passage of dying, you know, that these, these moments are meant to be chaotic, unconscious, dark. We are supposed to not recognize ourselves in certain moments, uh, you know, like the, you know, the snake that is molting, you know, or the chrysalis of the, of the caterpillar, you know, these examples in nature of a significant and fundamental transformation. And so I'm, I'm often still torn in trying to prioritize a process where we come to terms with elements in our life that didn't serve us and maybe led us to to have a deficit in terms of being able to be embodied connected you know to go back to jung's idea of of connecting with the self and i think there are myriad tropes and and theories that speak of of something similar you know of a distillation of of the schemas in one's life in order to feel more aware and more grounded and on the other hand, you have language from Jung, for instance, who would say that, you know, we, we find ourselves in our situation. You know, these situations that occur to us are opportunities where we learn about ourselves. And at some point, I came to an idea which actually there's a theorist that I've mentioned before named Wolfgang Giegrich, a German psychologist who is was a follower of Carl Jung, but then became very close to James Hillman, another close follower of Jung, who branched out on his own and created his own kind of field of inquiry called archetypal psychology. And then Wolfgang Giegrich, who went on to write, I think his most well-known book is called The Logical Life of the Soul, or The Soul's Logical Life. You know, in his writing, he often talks about the fact that there is this tension between the kind of everyday human being, everyday emotions, you know, frustrated that a traffic light is taking too long or 
upset at your spouse because they're home late or unhappy with with the service you get at a restaurant. Um, just to give a few sort of banal examples, you know, where we kind of feel out of step. And these are the sort of everyday concerns of the human being. And and he argues that those really aren't the concerns of, of psychology, of capital P psychology, which is much more concerned with a kind of uh, unfolding uh, of a logic inherent in our situation. And, and I've thought about this a lot because there is this idea in psychology that you're not always doing soulful work. Uh, I think Lacan was famous. Jacques Lacan, the famous French psychoanalyst, was known for his sessions being a whole range of times. If he felt that it was just kind of idle speech, he would cut off the session after five minutes. If he felt that you know there was some value and you know you were in a a kind of dialogue that was worthwhile that could go on for hours and to those Lacan scholars out there I, I apologize for my oversimplification but there was this idea that there is something about actually connecting and I've tried to to reconcile this idea with the more you know neurophysiological focus on on being let's say, deficient in some way of regulating one's affect, right? That's a real buzzword these days, right? Affect regulation and stress management and emotional intelligence. And if I didn't misread Gigri's work, he, he kind of comes out and he says, well, those issues of the body and of dealing with our stress for him are meant to be dealt with in a different domain. For him, they're not the realm of of psychology in the way that that he's writing about it and thinking about it, which I think makes sense given given his inheritance of Jung's oeuvre and and this thinking of a of a greater notionality of what is going on in our lives. And to stay with that for a second, I think that's very relieving in many ways. I think the idea of taking the kind of sum total of our experience, you know, and letting it wash over us. Yeah, we get we get frustrated with somebody and something something really unnerves us, you know. But what rather than kind of jumping to this conclusion that, oh, I I I I was hangry or I had a bad morning, that there's you know, there's something logical about how we experience our life and the images and fantasies that come to us uh, and disrupt our sort of conscious will. On the other hand, as I've been kind of threading through this podcast, when the individual is maltreated, and again, I don't like talking about this in binaries, there's all kinds of ranges of ways that of maltreatment, of failures in attunement. You know, these these aren't sort of like, oh, my parent failed at attunement. <laughs> there's a good chance that some of the times, you know, most people are attuned, but there's a pendulum that swings. And the ways that I've tried to make sense of this is that the ability to think and feel, right? Going back to, you know, what Freud said about the purpose of of psychoanalysis, of therapy, is to be able to work, you know, to love and to play. So there's this kind of good enough apparatus in the human being that can handle 
to an extent, the vicissitudes of these parts of our life. And we all know that for some, and at certain points in my own life, uh, the intensity of work or play or romantic relationships can be paralyzing and we can't move or we don't know what to do. And I think the prevailing theory in developmental psychology and all the interest in that, that that is burgeoning at this point, when we're now studying the brain and looking at how the neocortex interacts with you know, very strong emotional centers in the limbic system and how that then reacts with even more primitive kind of functional areas in the primitive brain, such as controlling blood pressure and breathing, and how this kind of symphony, you know, works together. And without proper development of what I call, what Jung called the symbolic function, so the ability of the, of the cortex to work in harmony with these more primitive drives and bring to us, you know, images and somatic information that helps us, that guides us in the world, that, that in developmental psychology, there's this idea that if any number of things kind of add up to that being sufficiently damaged, then it's going to be hard to play. It's going to be hard to get into rhythm with others in any kind of way that we experience as gratifying, as workable. You know, you've heard me on the, on the podcast talk very often about this prevailing idea of rupture and repair. Right to constantly remind ourselves to get out of absolutes and binary thinking, and think that life is constantly ebbing and flowing from, you know, moments of of connection and clarity, and moments where we are in between, and lost. But there is a line where even that is very difficult. We get stuck for uh, long periods of time with incredible anxiety and uh, an inability to move. And so there's a real question here of, can you romanticize that? <laughs> you know, if, if there is this basic idea of a kind of teleological drive towards something, you know, what does it mean, you know, for the person who can't get out of bed? You know, there are romantic ideas of this, and I've probably referenced this before, but you know, there's this idea of Picasso after his friend Caravaggio died and Picasso painting blue for 10 years, you know, going into some kind of uh, depression. Or I think in Japanese philosophy and mythology, something called the Nikeda, the, the, the descent into the underworld. And so there really is this, this tension in society between looking at the the symptoms of the human being as being a problem, as in, oh, this person can't get out of bed, what's wrong with them, they're not being a contributing member to society, we have to help them, what do we do to help them? Then there's a diagnosis of, of maybe major de de depressive disorder or, you know, versus these perhaps more, not so much esoteric as a kind of mythologizing of these experiences. And what I wonder about is if these philosophies might be able to play together a little bit, <laughs> where I think that to an extent, even the capacity to think through these things, right? Even the capacity for the human being 
to have a metapsychology of themselves, meaning can I observe my behavior and find insight into it, think about it, reflect on it, put that into language, and do it in a reasonably relatable way that that I can potentially even communicate that to others. That is predicated on, as I said earlier, there being a kind of you know good enough symphony of the brain, <laughs> symphony of the you know where where the first violinist, if we have that metaphor in our neurophysiology, can play uh, this music in a sophisticated enough way that it reaches us in some intelligible or eventually intelligible form. You know, you think about looking at dreams, for instance, and the way that that over time is a reflexive way that we metabolize unconscious, pre-verbal, non-verbal parts of ourselves that connect us. And I think, to be honest, that is why dream work can be a very fruitful enterprise, because it uses the highest capacity of, of the human nervous system to conceive of and think about ourselves and and it's integrative you know if dreams are being produced by you know parts of our limbic system when we're asleep and circumventing our conscious awareness then it actually makes sense why taking those up in a thoughtful and meaningful way even if our interpretations are wrong even if we say things about dreams that aren't true uh, nonetheless the the activity of of connecting those dots is relieving for the human being because it in, it's, it integrates the brain. It's an active way that we dig into parts of ourselves that otherwise are going on implicitly within us, which is I think is a good segue to say that not everybody can do that or withstand the emotions that are brought up, even when talking about dreams or asking somebody what is going on in their body. That if we come out of developmental environments where we have had to hide or find disgust with ourselves or our own impulses, it's going to be tough to engage in a process of uh, opening up. It'll be too overwhelming and we will protect ourselves. And so I wonder if in some ways that that is a bit of an answer to how we can think about these two facets of understanding our experience. On the one hand, you know, breaking things down and looking at the parts, looking at how an abusive, for instance, situation might have caused our amygdala to train itself to be on high alert. And then we come to therapy or come to some process, and it's determined that that there's a kind of vigilance there that is misplaced or that is a carryover of a previous experience. And as we know, you know, that is very difficult to change and takes time, patience, uh, and a respect for the wisdom of the human being's psychological apparatus, right? This stuff is there to ultimately prevent us from dying. And that's very ubiquitous now in in the literature and what gets trickled down to, to popular psychology, you know, constantly constantly hearing the refrain around fight or flight or freeze. Uh, it really is part of 
our everyday dialogue. I was having dinner the other night, and you know, the couple next to me, you know, were just throwing out contemporary psychological language just in talking about their life, whether it was being neurotic or PTSD. You know, this has become, you know, very much just just basic language that we use to try to understand ourselves. It's very important to recognize that, Re- recognize the importance of finding ways to bring to the surface our experiences from the past, especially relationally with others, with our parents or caregivers, and how the absence of uh, being mirrored in a, in a thoughtful and three-dimensional way makes it very hard for us when we're older to have our own three-dimensionality. And this is nothing new. It's not a new concept. But what, for me at least, felt new was that this may be something that we need to do first or in conjunction with realizing you know, what it means to open up to the symbolic. So a lot of people will come to therapy and have not spent a lot of time or not have had a lot of real estate devoted to their emotions. And there's very good reason for that. That can be cultural, that can be developmental, it can be the ways that somebody has modeled themselves in the world, perhaps after a, a kind of idol or in a mentorship. And I think it has to do with evolution as well. There's many, many cultures where, you know, being too emotional or having your heart on your sleeve is just not adaptive. It's not going to help you survive. On the other hand, to open oneself up to the images of the unconscious and dreams and emotions requires a confrontation with this material within us. That is, I think, to a large extent, unless we're going to stay in a kind of collective, what the French call, you know, participation mystique, you know, mystical participation, unless we're just going to stay in a kind of group psychology, of course, we can't avoid group psychology, we're part of society, but there are ways that that becomes evangelical, ideological, that difference is not really discussed in a way where the internal life of the individual is brought out in a kind of didactic and fulsome way, embodied way. Anxiety, I think, is often the telltale sign, not that something's going wrong, but often that one is coming into contact with these kinds of incongruent parts of the personality. And rather than jumping to a group psychology to make that go away, there's a kind of deep dive into one's own idiosyncratic, specific, and and subjective nature. And my thought on that is that as the individual is is perhaps jumping in that rabbit hole, especially if there were significant failures in attachment, the physiological experience of doing that has to be addressed. If somebody feels a paralyzing anxiety as they open up emotionally, if one loses their sense of themselves if if it's impossible to find language. I think that it's important not to sort of just mystify that experience and chalk it up to one's lot in life. And this is, you know, you have to go through this to get to the next step. That may be true, but I think it doesn't address what we now understand to be very reasonable and important insights 
into what it takes for the higher order mammal, the human being, to function in a, a good enough way with their feet on the ground a good part of the time. And I believe that if we look at that on a continuum, that as it becomes safer and more possible to have affect and scrutinize affect, find more language for one's inner experience, it seems to me that that can then lend itself to a kind of dialogue around symbols and around the purpose of our neuroses, you know, that, that to go into a kind of conversation to wonder, am I just acting out something against somebody else? Am I just blaming and projecting onto the world? Or is this a stuff of my own life that is being called to my attention to really look at and connect to? And I don't know if we can always start from that place, meaning I wonder if in certain cases uh, there has to be this pragmatic development of just becoming accustomed to to a way of speaking a language which really is uh, you know part of the evolution of the human being in the same way that that our teeth evolved to mimic our our diet and what we eat whether we're omnivores or carnivores or herbivores in the same way the ways that we approach our human experience and all the ways that that is perceived by us have traditionally been unreflected by language and image, right? This has been a thread in evolution for thousands of years and it, it continues. And we are in a kind of hyper linguistic meta psychological environment now. You know, social media, I don't think, has changed the basic laws of how we feel. It has certainly added layer upon layer of reflection and how we get reflected. And that very much, I think, defines our age. And it is important, I think, to have discretion about our ability to wield that muscle with a degree of uh, understanding success and fulfillment in terms of self-reflection. But for some, depending on whether that mirroring happened in a good enough way, can can lead to a deep discomfort with going into these, you know, metalinguistic ways of describing our experience. And as I've re referred to before, you know, Stephen Porges's idea of interoception, of developing a kind of internal perception of of our environment. So in, in summation of kind of what I wanted to to bring to the table and kind of open up about today was was how we might think about these different spheres in psychology, one which you know tends to look at at the kind of medicalization and reductiveness of human development and looking at you know the development of the brain, all this stuff we hear about about chemical imbalances and and not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, not to just simply zombify these theories as, oh, overly medical and too scientific. You know, I think that there is a lot of credibility to thinking about the human being that evolves in a way where vulnerability, emotion, the body uh, become very threatening because a person is stuck in survival mode. Uh, on the other hand, it's important not to reify that 
to the nth degree, not to make that kind of the only way that we understand ourselves because it's quite aggressive and it veers too easily into the territory of seeing ourselves as wrong or as as out of balance. There is a lot of truth that it can be hard to embody our emotions. And that is something that I see every day in my practice and in myself, that that is a constant evolution to be able to contain more. And that that process simultaneously lends itself to the other side of psychology, which, which has been to an extent more romantic and is not as concerned with these kind of everyday kind of medical physiological concerns but much more attuned to this kind of un- unfolding and and history you know that we're not unique in so many of the challenges that we face in our existence and we cannot divorce ourselves uh, from our inheritance of human experience and imagination that always has to be in the background so we do not simply see ourselves as the sum of our parts, that there is a kind of holistic driving force in our life that millions of other human beings have encountered. And yet, of course, we need to go through and thread the needle with our own subjectivity. That is that is the human experience. And I think that there's a lot of merit to the idea that encouraging, facilitating on a social, familial, international level, the safety of children, the safe environment of their emotions as much as we can, an understanding around how to be adults and pull back our own despair to make space for the next generations, that is crucial, right? This is not about go out in the world and, you know, it was tough for me, it'll be tough for you. I think that has to go by the wayside. On the other hand, we we need to remind ourselves that existential crises are here to stay and no amount of therapy or self-help or books are going to lead to some kind of saccharine experience of the world. Uh, And I think there's a lot of value in raising our experience to to that level, which was sort of where I, I started in my thinking and my experience. And and it was and is very helpful at times to really frame difficult moments not as something to be fixed or something that has gone wrong, but it really is just germanely and inherently part of being alive. And I think there's some dignity in affording us and ourselves that frame and that possibility. It's been really great to just slow down, let you in a bit, kind of share a bit on what I've been reflecting on. And I post every day on Instagram, I am Mitchell Smolkin. That's my handle at I am Mitchell Smolkin. And you can learn more about me at my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, or send me an email, feedback at mitchellsmolkin.com, and let me know what you'd love to hear on the podcast. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll, I'll take it up and, and connect with you so we can collaborate on this together. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sticking around to the end if you're still here. I remain faithfully yours.